This episode of Fried Egg Stories, in fact, this season of Fried Egg Stories, is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. In addition to fantastic rangefinders like the NX9 Slope, Precision Pro is an industry leader in customer service. If you have an issue or a question, give them a call and you'll talk to an actual person, a person named Eric. Eric is a golfer and a really good guy, and he's there to help you. So if you're looking for a rangefinder to help with your golf game, check out Precision Pro. Their mission is to provide golfers with quality rangefinders at an affordable price, and they definitely do that. Our listeners can receive an extra $20 off any Precision Pro rangefinder by using coupon code FRIEDEGG20. That's FRIEDEGG20, $20 off. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing. Playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. All right, testing, testing. Can you hear me? <laughs> My name is Jim Gandy. Um, I'm oftentimes referred to as South Carolina's weatherman. And of my forecast, probably the one that everybody remembers is my forecast of Hurricane Hugo. So tell me about tracking Hurricane Hugo in its early stages. This was in 1989, right? That's right. At the time, I was the chief meteorologist at WIS Television in Columbia, South Carolina. And it was not a big concern until the weekend before before it hit. I saw a note from the Washington Office of the National Weather Service, which indicated that the weather pattern was such that this is a storm that might affect the Southeast. So obviously that piqued my interest. And when it hit Puerto Rico, it was a powerful storm. It had maximum sustained winds. I think it was close to 160 miles an hour. My biggest concern was the fact that the National Hurricane Center was forecasting it turn head toward South Florida, but everything I was looking at was telling me that it was headed more toward the Carolinas. So what do you do? And uh, I decided right now it's not doing what the National Hurricane Center says it's going to do. So here I am going on TV saying, well, I don't think it's gonna hit South Florida. I think it's gonna hit South Carolina. It's a big difference. Granted, there were some things that happened with the storm that I wasn't expecting. I didn't expect it to pick up speed like it did, but I did expect it to intensify. And that was a pretty gutsy call. It turned out to be pretty accurate. So give me a sense for the threat of a hurricane hitting the coast of South Carolina with winds of 130 miles per hour. Particularly in the low country of South Carolina, there's going to be a tremendous amount of flooding. Uh, You have to get out of there long before the storm arrives because many of the escape routes get cut off by rising water. Mm. The coast itself, when you're going from from the beach out into the ocean, the slope there is, is very shallow. So as the water piles up, it rises quickly. 
the center of the storm, of course, it, it hit down, you know, near Charleston. Probably the best story that we, we covered was at the high school near McClellanville. That was north of where the storm came in, but it was also very close to where the highest storm surge. The storm surge was over 20 feet in Hurricane Hugo. And the high school was right there, ground zero practically. And as the storm came in, the water was rising and it was rising quickly. It's nighttime, it's, it's dark. And, and people have, have huddled inside the cafeteria trying to take shelter from the storm, everybody in that area. And the water now is getting up to the windows. And the principal of the school decides to try to find a better location for everybody. So he gets his way up to the roof, goes out on the roof, but then the door behind him latches shut and he can't get back in. And he had to ride the hurricane out, holding on to an exhaust pipe for the duration. And he had to hang on for dear life because the winds were so strong. And of course, he was just getting pelted by rain, even some of the uh, roofing material that was out there. People were really getting concerned because they were having to put people up on tables because of the water that was rising. The water, if you could see out the windows, was higher on the outside of the building than it was on the inside of the building. What happened to that poor man who was stuck outside in the end? Surprisingly, he survived it. And so did the people inside the building. They were scared to death, but everybody survived. At the time, it was one of the costliest storms. I think it was one of the top 10 costliest storms in U.S. history. I think in South Carolina, the damage was estimated at $6 billion. And it affected the coast from Hilton Head to Myrtle Beach. And right in the center of that path of destruction was Keough Island, where just a couple of months before, Pete Dye had begun to build a golf course. The site was destroyed, obviously. The landscape was mangled beyond recognition. And in almost exactly two years, this course was supposed to host the 1991 Ryder Cup. I'm Garrett Morrison. And I'm Andy Johnson. And this is Fried Egg Stories. On today's episode, the story of one of the biggest, craziest challenges in the history of golf architecture, the making of the ocean course at Kiowa Island. So here we are, Fried Egg Stories, season two. And there are a couple of new things about this batch of episodes. For one, there's a theme, and that theme is the modern championship game. We're planning to tell stories that look at championship golf from a number of different angles, the tournaments, the personalities, should be fun. And the second new thing is that Andy's here with me. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing great. I'm excited to try this out. Garrett's kept me kind of blind to this whole process, so I, I don't know uh, really what's going on, but I, I am, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I mean, you're basically in the same position as any other listener. I didn't tell you anything beforehand about what's going to be in this episode, and I'm just curious to get your reactions uh, as we go along. So we have the 2021 PGA Championship coming up. 
It's at the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island. Widely considered one of Pete Dye's best designs, if not his best. Would you say this is Pete Dye's best course? I think it's one of his best sites. Yeah. I think and he said in his book that he would have, you know, possibly given up his wife to design this <laughs> golf course. So I think it's a it's a great golf course. And he did what he was asked. He built a really hard championship golf course. For sure. Also hosted the twenty twelve PGA Championship, but I think the ocean course will always be most associated with one tournament. And that's the nineteen ninety one Ryder Cup, the war by the shore. So, Andy, for you, what comes to mind when you think about this Ryder Cup? I mean, you were probably just four or five years old when it was played, so you didn't like watch, watch it when it was it's, happening. It's the, it's the Golf Channel documentary that they did on it, yeah. And I just, I think, like the tension between the two teams, and also, obviously, the the disaster, the meltdowns that happened. It was, <laughs> it was the site of of numerous meltdowns on Sunday, and I think that's probably what what I'll remember most is this golf course that invoked chaos throughout the event yeah calcavecchia mark calcavecchia who is two up with two to go his opponents in the water are you kidding me that might have been the strangest shot by a pro i've ever seen and then and then there's just like the visual of the ocean course itself it was a, a brand new course it had been built for this moment and the look of it the ruggedness of it the sea and the sand Obviously, as you said, the way it played, how difficult it played, all of this is a big reason why this Ryder Cup became so iconic. Like, if you had held it at another course, it wouldn't have been the same, right? So it was really striking for me to find out that as the ocean course was being built by Pete Dye and his crew, a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to get finished on time. And some were expecting that the 91 Ryder Cup was going to be an absolute fiasco. All right, backing up a little bit, the first big question I have is why this was all happening at the last minute. Like, why had the Ryder Cup been given to a course that hadn't been built yet? So I called up one of the main decision makers. Hello. Hello, uh, Mr. Autry. This is Garrett Morrison calling from the Fried Egg. How are you doing? Good, Garrett. How Who are you? Who is Jim Autry? My name is Jim Autry. And in the late 1980s, I became the executive director of tournament operations for the PGA of America and later became CEO. And Jim explains that it all started with this contract that the PGA of America had with Landmark Land Company. Landmark was a big golf development firm, definitely one of the most powerful and influential of its era. It had done Oak Tree National, Mission Hills, La Quinta, many other courses. And Landmark had this deal with the PGA of America to hold the Ryder Cup at one of its properties, PGA West. In the desert at the stadium course. And that was set for 1991. Now, when the PGA started reconsidering that venue choice, it was around 1987 which happened to be the first year that the Pete Dye Design Stadium course had hosted the Bob Hope Classic, now known as the American Express. And Andy, you've looked into this story before. What did the pros think when they played Pete Dye's PGA West for the first time? It didn't go well. They they complained. <laughs> they thought it was unfair. There was utter outrage among so many members. It is similar in a, in a way to what happened after the first playing of the players at TPC Sawgrass, except... You know, they went a little bit further than just saying the course needed to be tweaked here and there and the greens needed to be softened at Sawgrass. That's what they said. At PGA West, they just they went straight for the jugular. They said, no more. 
We didn't ever. We never want to see this place again. Right. They, they. What you're referring to is they submitted a petition to the commissioner of the PGA Tour, Dean Beeman, demanding that PGA West not be used again. You know, they hated it. So my assumption has always been that the 91 Ryder Cup was moved away from PGA West for that reason, you know, to placate the pros. But I asked Jim Autry if that was the case, West, that, you know, that not all of the pros were, were in love with the course. <laughs> no, I don't recall that being having anything to do with the move. Basically, he says that PGA West was problematic, mainly from a fan and business perspective. First thing I noticed was the Ryder Cup being played in the desert in September. And upon reflection, thinking it's 110 degrees in the desert, there's no one there in September, and they haven't overseas the golf courses, I didn't see how that was going to be very successful Ryder Cup. In other words, it's going to be deathly hot, everyone's going to be out of town, and the golf course is probably going to be brown. And on top of that, there was pressure. There's a lot of pressure to make this particular Ryder Cup work. You have to keep in mind that in the 80s, the Ryder Cup wasn't nearly as big of a deal as it is now. It didn't make that much money. It, it just wasn't a massively valuable media property like it is today. But it had at least become competitive. 1985, Team Europe won for the first time since Team Europe was created. 87, they won again. So there was some juice behind the competition, and the hope was that 1991 would take it to the next level, because 1991 would be the first year that NBC would televise the Ryder Cup. This was the first time there would be truly extensive live coverage of the event on a major network in the U.S. You know, it's sort of surprising to, to think about this now. The Ryder Cup wasn't very well covered before this. You know, it was kind of on at weird times. It was tape delayed. It was on USA. You know, it wasn't on the major networks live. So Jim Autry and the PGA of America were looking at this and thinking, 91 could be our year. It'll be a competitive match. It'll be on everyone's TV. But for some reason, we're giving them the Coachella Valley in late September. It just, like, wasn't ideal. So they decided to try to move the Ryder Cup away from PGA West. The problem was this, this contract the PGA of America had with Landmark Land Company to hold it there. Fortunately for Jim Autry, he actually had really close connections with Landmark. I had grown up and my first job out of college was with Joe Walser. He was one of the principal developers of Landmark. And I had lived with him right out of college and he was just like a second father. So I remember going to Joe and I said, Joe, I don't think the desert is the place to be playing the Ryder Cup in September. He said, well, Jim, what do you want to do? And I said, well, Joe, I think I'd like to see if you'd let us out of the agreement. <laughs> and Joe looked at me typical and said, partner, I don't think we can do that. After we talked a little bit of reflection, he said, I got an idea. He said, we're getting ready to build a golf course and build a development on the East Coast in Kiowa Island. And he said, I think that'd be a great place for the Ryder Cup. This was the Kiowa Island Resort. Already had three golf courses. And when Landmark Land Company bought those courses in 1988, it also received land for a fourth course on the southeastern tip of the island. This was what would become the ocean course. Now, Joe Walzer passed away in 2012, but 
I was able to get a sense of Landmark's perspective from Chris Cole. And I was the project director of all the uh, recreational assets on Keel Island, plus the land that, where the ocean course was going to be built. What Chris says is basically the main thing Landmark liked about moving away from PGA West to Kiowa was the time zone difference. I think it was, do you understand the commercial ability of if you have it on the West Coast versus having it on the East Coast in, in, in Europe? Do you understand those three-hour changes? The people can come home in Europe and watch the Ryder Cup now. In other words, if it's at PGA West in the Pacific time zone, most of Europe is asleep during the matches, especially the afternoon matches. Whereas if it's at Kiowa in the Eastern time zone, a lot of it's in prime time. More European eyes on the Ryder Cup, more international publicity for a landmark property, more value for the company. But now Landmark had to convince the PGA that the ocean course was going to actually get built and be good. The PGA, not just Jim Autry, but certainly Jim Autry, all the officers, everything went, wow, what if we did it, but who can we trust? And they said, we're going to have Pete Dye build it. First, come look at the ground. So I met Pete. He put me in his truck, and we drove out there on, on the dune line, and Pete had me out walking through the, the weeds and the bushes like Pete, only Pete would do. And he would have me stand up on a mound, and he would say, See, Jim, this is a dog leg right par four. And it turns right off that mound, and I'm looking out there, and I see nothing but brush. So I said, Pete, I can't see it. He said, move over here a little bit, Jim. He said, right there, can't you see your dog legs right off that mound? I said, Pete, I'm sorry, I cannot see it. Come look at two miles, oceanfront property. You think he's not going to build a great golf course? That was how we started. And when I saw the dunes, saw the ocean, Pete described the course because Pete could see all this in his head. Uh, He said, this is going to be a great spot. They said, yeah, but you got two years. We said, we have no problems. You got to trust Pete Dye and us that we're going to get her done. So we agreed to move the Ryder Cup to Kiowa Island on a course that hadn't been built. And we announced that we were going to move. So that announcement was made in May 1989, and the tournament was scheduled for September 1991. I think this is one of those situations where you make a series of what seem like logical decisions, and somehow at the end of it, you find yourself in this crazy predicament. I mean, what a risk. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And of all the architects, too, to do it with. (laughs) <laughs> Die would be just the the worst one in the world to work with. You know, when he when he drew plans for townships, he would give them plans from other golf courses. <laughs> you know, he would just you know if somebody it would make him angry, and he would not want to work with somebody anymore. And and now all of a sudden you've got not only Landmark on his schedule, but you got the PGA of America and NBC all worried. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pete Dye made a habit of driving corporations crazy. And now here he's working with several massive corporations and and they have a really difficult project that they're about to do, you know, because it wasn't just about getting the golf course built. It was about creating a course that could immediately host the Ryder Cup, 
and not just any Ryder Cup, but the first one to be broadcast live on NBC, the Ryder Cup that was supposed to reestablish the reputation of the entire event. And so the course, as Chris Cole put it to me, it has to be born Miss America. No awkward adolescence. It has to be born Miss America. And I think this is the thing. Like all resorts obviously want to get you to see their courses right off the bat. You know, opening day. But in reality, if you're if you're a wise consumer, you want to wait two, three years, let that course mature over time. And none of these courses are very few, very ra- rarely do they open in mint condition. And and that hosting a major golf event is you need a whole different level. I mean, you talk to superintendents, superintendents focus for two years on their golf course to get it ready for the championship when it's already like a mature golf course. This one, you had two years to get a golf course that didn't exist ready for a a big tournament agronomically. Right. And if you're thinking, and if Landmark is using this as an advertisement for the newly relaunched Kiowa Resort, what if the golf course looks terrible? Like, you know, it's a it's a big risk. They they just have to sort of roll with what they had at the end of the process. So that was the challenge. And right away, Pete Dye started doing what I think maybe Pete Dye did best, and that was assembling a team. Yeah, my name is Scott Poole. I worked for uh, Pete for 10 years, and uh, during the Kiowa project, uh, I was brought in with a lot of the different people to help build the golf course. I was there primarily uh, as a shaper. Uh, Jason McCoy, and I was project manager for the ocean course at Kiowa for Pete. So what what was the first you heard about the Kiowa project? Do you remember the first time you, you heard that it was like a possibility? I was, I was doing the Kohler courses. I was working in Richmond Hill, uh, Georgia, down at the Ford Plantation where Pete was doing the uh, redesign of it. When we got done in Kohler, we'd be headed down there. He wanted me to go down and take a look at it. Jason, let's go. We're going to get in the car and go take a look at Kiel, which was obviously a short ride from there. Well, you know, I've seen a lot of good property that Pete would get, but this is by far, you know, when you put a golf course on an ocean, when you have that much ocean front, you couldn't ask for a better site. It was pretty spectacular. I had really probably never seen anything like it other than on television. But as beautiful as the site was, it, it wasn't exactly easy. And this is where it starts to seem truly insane that the PGA, Landmark, and Pete Dye took this on as a two-year project. What you had was a property way at the end of Kiowa Island, just this narrow strip of land between marshes on one side and dunes on the other. It was hard to get equipment out there. You had a lot of environmentally restricted areas. You had drainage issues. You had water that could come onto the golf course from just about any direction from the marshes, from the ocean, and he needed a way to, to get that water off. Those were the main difficulties. It was nothing Pete Dye couldn't handle. Like he had built a lot of courses in the south on swamps, on marshes, but the ocean course was different because of the deadline and because of the pressure to be great right away. So July, 1989, construction started. By September, things were coming along well. Jason McCoy says they had the site cleared and four or five holes roughly shaped. And at that time, September 1989, the PGA people and many of the landmark people, including Jim Autry and Chris Cole, were not in South Carolina. Well, I actually, Garrett, I was in England. At, at the Ryder Cup? I was at the Ryder Cup. We're at the Ryder Cup at the Belfry in England. 
I took the mayor and a bunch of the involved people and stuff. We went to the Ryder Cup in England to understand how big a deal this was going to be. And I walked in to the bar area, and, of course, the mayor of Charleston was there, and people from all over America were there for the Ryder Cup. And I walked in, they were all around the TV in the bar. And I said, what's going on? And they said, well, a major hurricane is getting ready to hit. And as we're watching the deal, they said, it's a dead eye for Charleston. We said, oh, Lord, well, this ain't going to work, so let's get out of here. And, of course, Joe and all the landmark people were getting ready to leave. The mayor of Charleston was there. They were getting ready to leave. You couldn't fly into Charleston. You had to fly into Atlanta. By then, Charleston and especially Kiowa Island, Kiowa Island was under National Guard. Wow. Chris actually flew out with Joe. They flew out. Pete flew out. And then we met Chris and Joe at the airport. We, we drove to Charleston. Jason and all of us, we went from Atlanta and stopped from there. We couldn't get all supplies and flashlights and batteries and food and drove to Charleston five hours. And we followed the um, guard, the National Guard, into the island. And it was the most eerie thing that I've ever been around. It was, it was uh, not pretty. It was like a bomb went off. You know, pine trees snap. You couldn't hardly drive down the road. We were going and you got turned around. You had to get the machines to clear your way to get us through. We had a flat tire. Typical, they put me as a driver. For what reason, I do not know. Once Jason, Chris, Joe Walzer, and Pete Dye reached the golf course site, what they saw was an unfamiliar piece of land. Uh, The storm basically took out three quarters of the live oaks and really just massacred the main dune line. It was gone, so we've got a total bit of intrusion of salt water all over the golf course. So, yeah, you were scared to death. You were scared to death that now we only got a year and a half or something. You know, all of us listening to our voices were like, you know, this thing's probably never going to happen now. But by the time Pete Dye talked to Jim Autry again, it was a different story. And Pete, if only Pete Dye would do it, he said, Jim, I'll have this built back. He said, I'll build it back and we'll have it ready. All right. Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf, makers of fine range finders. So for the past few months, I've been using the Precision Pro NX9, and it's absolutely great. Is that the one you've been using, Andy? I've got the NX9 slope. That's the one I have. I have the slope. Yeah, I, I have the slope as well. Ironically, this is the first uh, major championship that will be contested with rangefinders. Do you, I, I think there might be some precision pros out there in the wild at this PGA. They better not have the slope on. I, I wonder. I wonder. I always wonder about this. I until the the NX nine slope, I never had one with the slope function, and I always wondered when I played tournament golf, like. <laughs> Does, how how would I ever know if so-and-so does, has their slope off? Right. Yeah, I would assume that the players are going to be out there with rangefinders that don't that don't have a slope function. Like, uh, I, I'm just imagining going out there with my slope 
rangefinder and accidentally leaving the slope on yeah like not intending to cheat or anything but i i zap the first flag and i see the slope number and i'm like oh god now i'm dq'd it could be like uh ian wisdom with the 15 clubs at the at the open but somebody realizes their slopes on on the 16th hole could open it up to new controversies which are a good which are a good thing for for major golf they make great content but Precision Pro doesn't just want you to measure distance. They also want to help you measure your improvement. And to do that, they've created a one-of-a-kind golf app, which is completely free. And you can pick it up in the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and, and kind of you know, track your game. It's awesome. You can I've used it. You can like basically plot your way around the golf course, how you played it. You can do it in real time. You can do it after rounds. It's, it's a deep app, and it's completely free. They just want to help you. They want to help you play better. This is Precision Pro. So it's a great company. It should be said that they stepped up and made this new season of Fried Egg Stories possible, right? Like this kind of podcast episode is as independent and inefficient as it gets. Takes a long time to make them. And Precision Pro is supporting it. So our listeners can get an extra $20 off any Precision Pro rangefinder by using coupon code FRIEDEGG20. That's FRIEDEGG20 at PrecisionProGolf.com. Give it a try. So right after Hurricane Hugo, Pete Dye was making his way around the site in a little rowboat with an electric motor. And what I think he figured out pretty early on was that Hugo might have been a blessing in disguise for the Ocean Course Project, like not not for anything else. It was a devastating storm, but for the Ocean Course Project. So one of the main problems facing Dye and Landmark initially was how restricted the landscape was. It was highly environmentally sensitive. The wetlands, certain habitats, certain kinds of vegetation, a lot was protected. And you had government agencies and environmental groups keeping a close eye on things. And there was even a real possibility that this project would get completely bogged down in permitting issues. Well, after the storm, a lot of that changed. And I think there are a couple of ways to look at what happened. The positive take is that the Ocean Course became an environmental reclamation project. Diane Landmark actually got permission from the Army Corps of Engineers to reconstruct the dune ridge along the beach. Like, I don't, I don't know if you noticed that, that the dune ridge along the beach there is artificial. Like, that was, that was made. Yeah. And, and it looks great. It's, it looks, it, yeah, it looks different than other places on the island. Yeah. So they re-nourished the dunes with native plants, sea oats. They also installed weirs on the waterways to protect the marshes from being overwhelmed by stormwater or big tides. I mean, they essentially stabilized that piece of land after the hurricane had wrecked it. The slightly less charitable take is that the hurricane fallout distracted all the oversight groups enough so that Pete Dye and his crew had way more freedom to do whatever they wanted. And, and there is some truth to that. You know, I did a lot of interviews for this story, not just the ones featured in this episode. And I heard from more than one person that the crew would get heavy equipment to the site by driving it directly down the beach at low tide, which would normally be a big no-no. And we did things that you just weren't allowed to do. So in a way, did the hurricane loosen up some of the environmental restrictions that might oh, have been no, there? No question. I don't know if it necessarily loosened them up in their eyes. I think it loosened them up more in our eyes. So that's Jason McCoy, and he went on to tell me a story that I think illustrates the kind of liberties that Diane's crew took at times. 
This was later on in the construction, and Alistai had come up with the idea of raising the fairways so players would have better views of the ocean. But in order to do that, they needed to get a lot of dirt from somewhere. Usually you'd find this kind of dirt at the bottom of a body of water. So a couple of foggy mornings, Pete would call me and he said, Jason, the fog's heavy. He said, get every piece of machinery we have. Dozers, trackos, loaders, whatever it may be. I need them all over here in this little area. And this little area was a wetland. Well, this wetland became a pond and we did it under the cover of a fog every morning for about five hours. And then we'd get out. All the machines would leave and we'd go back to doing what we were doing on the golf course. So we did this process for about three weeks and we got a whole heck of a lot of dirt out of that particular wetland to be able to create some of the features that raised all the fairways up. Oh, wow. But I mean, it would just not be something that you would ever be able to do again. No question in my just, mind. Uh, that, that wetland would be kind of off limits. You'd be like, no, you can't go there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you'd go to jail kind of thing. I actually hunt with the environmentalist now, bird hunt with him. And I was actually with him last week, Duncan Newkirk, uh, Newkirk Environmental. And he's like, you guys broke every law you could possibly break. And I'm like, Duncan, that's not true. There was a law that was put in place for Hugo. And it was that you could go in your marsh and you could retrieve your boat. The Coastal Council of South Carolina came up with that. So I just told him, I said, we had a heck of a lot of boats in the marsh. So that's why we were in there and getting them out. So I'm sure you could have a, a vigorous debate about all of this, you know, whether suspending the normal environmental procedures is justified in light of hurricane recovery. But the, the general point is that Hugo, while clearly a setback in many ways for the Ocean Course Project, ended up creating a kind of chaos that Pete Dye absolutely thrived on. I mean, this was an architect who made plans but didn't like to be held to them, liked to make changes without asking permission, liked for his crew to feel that they could experiment and not get in trouble. And after Hugo, that was more or less exactly what Dye had at Kiowa. Yeah, I, I mean, I think every artist wants people to get out of the way. And obviously the hurricane made it really hard for people to get in and out of the property. Right. So when I ask people like Jason McCoy and Scott Poole about what it was like to work on the ocean course, they do talk about long hours and a sense of urgency, but mainly they remember the fun times and the sort of wild parts of it. Were you carrying around a shotgun on the construction well, site? I carried a pistol. I carried a pistol. So there's Jason so told there's, me about how much really he enjoyed great. basically one, one making Pete die fear for his life. He would walk anywhere. He was fearless. He just didn't. He wasn't thinking about it. He was thinking about that golf hole and thinking about what he was going to do. And, and I mean, there was a rattler three foot from him and I shot it and just scared the living hell. Cause I didn't tell him, obviously there was a snake. I didn't, you know, <laughs> don't jump, you know, that's always, so I just shot it. And I mean, he liked to have a heart attack. Not only, you know, it wasn't about the snake. It was about me shooting, you know, and he's like, son of a bitch, you know, you kill me, you know, I'm like, Pete, there was a snake. So I killed the snake and we had the snake and we had the picture of, it, you know, holding the snake, that kind of thing. So it was great. And Scott Poole described almost like a, a Neverland type of atmosphere. Well, we found a, a shipwreck one time. There was a sailboat that had apparently washed up in the beach, but over time the beach had grown and covered it up. And as we were digging a lake, Sure enough, we could see there was a, there was wood coming up and we could see there was a boat. And one evening we decided to have a few beers and go up and try to, you know, look for treasure. We were looking for the prop, you know, 
So we we kind of worked into the late and we dug up the whole thing and, and somebody had already salvaged the prop, you know. <laughs> but when they weren't screwing around, they were doing some really strong, innovative work. You know, Jason came up with some ingenious ways of revegetating the site and, and combining drainage and irrigation systems so that stuff didn't run off into the marshes. And then Scott was the lead shaper. And you look at the ocean course now and it's got to be one of Pete Dye's best shaped golf courses, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it's it's not necessarily natural, but it, it feels like it fits. You know, the shapes are eccentric, but they have a very artistic quality to them. They're they're exciting shapes, right? They're they're not they don't look cliched. There's kind of a weirdness to them and a fun to them that that really works. So they were doing great work. They were doing it quickly, and a lot of the credit for that has to go to this freewheeling culture that Die encouraged after the hurricane. It's, it's amazing to me what he surrounded himself with. He surrounded him with young guys that had no fear. You know, he, he liked it when you make a big mistake because that gave him an idea. You know, he, he told me, yeah, that whatever you do, don't build a golf hole you've seen before. Show me something. He says, I don't care how bad it is. I'll take the heat and fix it if I have to, or maybe I'll like it. He, he made us feel like we could conquer the world uh, and you were fearless because you knew he had your back. I became fearless real fast of what I was doing on the golf course because I just tell him, well, you know, Pete told me to do it and he always backed me up. He made us think there was nothing we couldn't do. We were too naive to know better and that's what he liked. So the sense of fearlessness that the course builders are describing was not shared by others involved in the project. Whenever people visited the site, they, they usually went away thinking that the golf course would never be finished on time. So that brings us to 1990, one year out from the Ryder Cup and the PGA Cup, kind of the, the club professional version of the Ryder Cup. Argu arguably the most underrated event in golf. Is it even televised? PGA Cup? Eh, sometimes. It's kind of like the Walker yeah, Cup. I've got a PGA Cup hat. Oh, yeah? Did you go to the PGA Cup one time? No. no. Okay. PGA <laughs> just knows how much, how big of a supporter I am of the PGA Cup. <laughs> Um, PGA Cup was held at Turtle Point, 1990. Turtle Point is also part of the Kiowa Resort. Jim Autry was there, and British PGA officials were there, and they visited the Ocean Course site. Oh, I remember it very well. I had a meeting with the officials. They were very concerned, and they, they said, we're going to go back home and tell people not to come because it's not going to be ready. Wow. We're going to recommend they don't come. And I uh, didn't take to that very well. Probably the most upset, and I've had some people tell me that the maddest I'd maybe been, which I don't normally do, but that was their reaction during the cup matches at Turtle. And the next year, early in 1991, more and more people were starting to drop by. Yeah, hi, this is Dave Stockton. I was the captain of the 1991 Ryder Cup team that took place against the Europeans at Keogh Island in 1991. I was shocked to arrive there in January, eight months before we were going to play, and literally there was no grass. And I got a call from Dave Stockton after Augusta, and he said, Jim, I'm going to take the team that's available, and I want to take them to Keogh when we'll play the gospel. And I said, Dave, you can't do that. He said, why not? I said, the greens aren't potable. And I said, we don't want them looking at the golf course. It's not finished yet, thinking we're going to be playing in six months. And he said, well, I'm doing it. 
And to show you how bad it was, Tom Kite took a Masters Cadillac, drove in, and where the clubhouse is now, he buried the Cadillac up to the frame in sand. Didn't know about that. You didn't I've never, know that. I've never okay. heard about it. You could. I mean, if you got in the wrong spot, that's why I was saying it was still extremely soft. It hadn't just hadn't firmed up. Heck yeah, a dozer to pull it out. Now the players are there. They got some beer and they're on their, in their shorts and they just have a blast. They play the golf course and no media were there. Nobody knew about it. <laughs> you can imagine what would have happened if the media had been following them around on a golf course that's not finished yet six months before the Ryder Cup. I wasn't too sure about the prospects of having a golf course at that point. <laughs> you, honestly, you couldn't afford to spend much time thinking about the worst case because the worst case was would be an absolute disaster. Right. You know? <laughs> so, yes, it was frightening, but once you made the commitment, I think that's what landmark people would tell you. Once you made the commitment, you had so much to get done, you never had time to think about it. I think it's kind of in a way, like if you're playing an event as a player, you know, you're obviously nervous and, you know, but you're in the moment, you're doing the job, like, and you have so much going on that the nerves go away outside of usually just like the first tee or maybe trying to get it done at the end. Mm -hmm. But if you're caddying in an event, you're so nervous the whole time. And you're like, a you're the, you're the onlooker that everything's out of your control. But when you're in control, you're so much less nervous. And that is probably how those guys felt. And they were so busy. Like there's so much to do. There wasn't enough time to be nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's maybe about perspective too. When you're in the middle of something like that, you don't have the outside perspective of like, this is kind of insane. <laughs> you know, this is like, consider what Chris Cole was doing at the time. He was project director for Landmark at Kiowa, so he was handling a lot of the infrastructure and the logistics. How do you get to the end of a 10-mile island? You're going to have 25,000 people. you got to build a little city. Prior to the Ryder Cup, we guaranteed every hotel in Charleston, booked all the rooms. We went to Kiowa Island, which we had like 300 and something rental units that, you know, people own, but they rent them out, blocked them all out. People wanted to come in with a family or whatever. We even went to the next island, Seabrook, and said, we will rent all your units and filled every one of them. Then we had one parking place. It was a tomato field. And everybody parked there, and everybody was bused to the ocean course. Throughout the island, we had bus stops, and you get bused to the court. No, no traffic. Everybody gets to be bused and let out right at the ocean course. I mean, it, it was such an amazing event that, like I said, you staged the city for four or five days and then tore it down figure out how you're going to do that down at 10 Mile Island and then watch it happen and all of it happened was as exciting as the tournament almost for me. I mean, to watch it and say, wow. I'm, I'm curious how, uh, if you can put yourself back in your shoes at the 1991 Ryder Cup and, and the you know, the event's about to start and you see the golf course. Are there feelings of relief 
Oh, absolutely. We got there and we saw everything was done and all the bus compound and everything was set up, Concord's flying in. You just had a feeling then, okay, it's, it's, it's okay. So there are plenty of accounts of what happened next. A classic Ryder Cup, a dogfight, all the way to the 18th hole of the final match, the Ryder Cup. where Bernhard Langer missed that six-footer and the U.S. reclaimed the cup. Oh, and it slipped by the edge. It slipped by the edge, and now things change. Now things change. And the amazing thing about it is that the event really did do everything it was meant to do. And in 91, we launched the Modern Ryder Cup to one of the best events in the world. And then you look at the background behind Keough Island, and it almost reads like a fantasy story. But for Landmark, it ended up being a bit more complicated than that. Obviously, the ocean course was very successful, instantly popular. But by 1991, Landmark was in big, big trouble. Now, there's a complicated backstory here, but Landmark had structured its finances in a certain way in the 80s that suddenly, because of new a new law, became illegal. And ultimately, the government seized Landmark's assets and auctioned off the resort properties, including Kiowa. Landmark did reform, started over, kept going, still exists today. But 1991 was this moment when the company's initial run of dominance stopped. And so, symbolically, I think this gives the 91 Ryder Cup a kind of double valence, because on the one hand, it was the beginning of the new Ryder Cup, the beginning of the new PGA of America, but on the other hand, it was the end of an era as well for Landmark Land Company. And it makes me think of something Jim Autry said a few different times in my interview with him. We couldn't happen in modern time. You would move it. None of this would have happened today. But in those days... It seemed like a legitimate option. And what he means is that the Ryder Cup is a much bigger deal now, and the PGA wouldn't risk it on a project like the Ocean Course. But another thing that wouldn't happen today, I think, is the Ocean Course itself. Like, we're just not doing stuff like this anymore, at least in the U.S., spending millions and millions of dollars to build a hard-as-hell golf course on a sensitive piece of land, to debut at a big tournament, for the purpose of making a resort and real estate play. It's crazy. And it's representative of that era, I think, in the golf industry. And I guess the question is, are we glad that era is over? It's interesting because it's kind of a divergence where the event became way more commercialized, and that's why it would never happen this way, right? You have to have at least two years of lead-in all about the course. They need to have the content for commercials and social media and everything of the golf course. And then on the flip side, golf courses and trends of golf course development of the last 10 years are sans commercialization. We're going to build golf for golf's sake. Like it's going to be just about golf. So I think that's the thing, you know, when he says it would never happen today, he's so spot on because just the landscape of both industries has shifted so much in the polar opposite directions. Yeah. But but I still do, like, occasionally, against my better judgment, occasionally I get a little nostalgic for that time in American golf course construction, the 80s and 90s, not necessarily for the courses themselves or for the financial model they represented, but I do sort of admire the ambition of them. 
you know, these courses, they weren't the pyramids or anything, but some of these courses like Shadow Creek, for instance, were massive achievements of art and science and industry together. And when a project like the Ocean Course somehow got done, you just had to you know, tip your hat and say, wow, you know, you did that. This episode of Fried Egg Stories was produced by me, Garrett Morrison, and co-hosted by Andy Johnson. It was mixed and engineered by Jay Verrick, with transcript help from Meg Atkins. And big thanks to Jim Gandy, Jim Autry, Chris Cole, Jason McCoy, Scott Poole, Dave Stockton, and Troy Miller. Troy Miller is a, a Charleston-based golf architect. You've heard him on this podcast. And he actually connected me with a lot of the people I interviewed. And I had a whole conversation with him that didn't end up fitting anywhere in this episode. So sorry, Troy. But we did use excerpts from that interview in a video we made about the ocean course. And Andy, tell the people where they can find that video. Yeah, you can find that on our YouTube page. If you haven't been there, just go onto YouTube and search the fried egg. You know, you might learn how to cook a fried egg differently if you click on some of the videos, but there is an account, the fried egg. (laughs) And uh, click subscribe there, and uh, the video should be up there. Maybe most recent, depending on when you listen to this. uh, It'll be the most recent video, and you should be able to watch it. It's about you know, just about 10 minutes long and it is accompanied by beautiful visuals. So everything we talked about here about the site, you'll be able to see, you know, I recommend watching it on your TV through YouTube, either stream it on your TV or uh, airplay it up there, depending on what your setup is. Are we going to have 4K? It is 4K. Yeah, the four the 4K on the TV is just uh, out of this world. So we'd love to know what you all think of fried egg stories so feel free to reach out on twitter or instagram or maybe leave a review on itunes just an idea thanks for listening you know what made me realize this was doing those uh doing the videos with you and like realizing that instead of scripting them, we just needed to talk and extract the parts that were good. I did that. Remember that boomerang video I did for registration a few years ago where I was sitting in the room? Boomerang? Yeah, I yeah, guess I so. Did like yeah, a yeah, yeah. Video. Yes, yes. So that, that video, we did like 20 takes where I was trying to read from a script. And I finally, <laughs> and Kaylee was driving me nuts about it. <laughs> you know, like she's like, yeah, you know, why can't you? And I just said, I finally was like, I'm just going to wing it. And I, the first take, I wung it, and it was perfect. <laughs>